This podcast is brought to you by Voice of Vets. Voice of Vets. Hear it. Feel 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 it. On the COVID report today, we are joined by Anton van der Merwe, who is the South African Child Care Association's Group Managing Director. Anton, we have seen the journey that it was for SA Child Care Association and its affiliates to get the ban off ECDs and partial care facilities to operate in lockdown advanced level three. How has this journey been for you as an organization? Thank you very much. Uh, it was quite a ride. Um, we were t- trying to influence and trying to uh, get information uh, over to the role players in government and in the Department of Social Development. And the whole time we were trying to uh, t- tell them what is going on uh, on ground level. What, is, what, is, uh, what, what are the struggles and what are the, the stuff that's really hurting children and hurting people? But unfortunately, we were, we were not hurt. So in that, uh, in that context... Uh, when we found that uh, the Solidarity uh, Group has taken the uh, Department of Social Development to court, we then joined the court as a friend of the court to be able to make sure that all ECDs in South Africa is then, uh, in, uh, is then represented in this court case. So SA Child Care Association started the appeal in May for the Department of Social Development to allow the ECD centers to operate. How did the ruling of the court make you feel as an organization? Yes, thank you. I would like to do that. The, the reason why we have, we have put all the effort in with this court case and had our legal team work very hard is because uh, the closure of the ECD centers and partial care centers, or let's speak of preschool centers, had a, had a tremendous impact. Um, one of the first things that was to us, uh, we could not understand, it was not the rational, uh, that they were right at the beginning in lockdown five. There were people that had to go to work, but there was no daycare allowance made for them or arrangement made for them. Then when we got to lockdown four, Another 1.5 million people went back to work. Again, no daycare, nothing open. And then, of course, to lockdown three, eight and a half million additional workers went back, but there was no provision made for the children of those people that had to go to work. And that was terrible. The parents had to go and work, otherwise they can't earn. uh, And the, the children were stuck at home. Uh, for uh, most probably near to 100 days already uh, at that point in time, or at this point in time. And uh, their development uh, was was really uh, touched by this because they couldn't come into the normal developmental circles that they were moving. Uh, And then also the staff, all the staff members. uh, Preschools have a great group of staff, and the staff couldn't work. They couldn't earn. And then eventually the preschools started shutting down and people have just gave up and it became such a dire problem that we were absolutely over the moon when the court said that we could open immediately uh, if we comply to the COVID-19 standard operating procedures. 
Great segue into my next question. Um, in the interest of safety and in the interest of making sure that all of those boxes are ticked off as far as making sure that uh, you meet the government requirements for safety and uh, PPEs and all of that stuff, as the, or, or as the association, how are you going to ensure that these ECDs follow the regulations, especially that the ban was lifted immediately? Well, you know, uh, in our case, we were kind of contemplating the fact that the court would uh, rule in our favor. So two or three weeks before the court uh, already gave uh, the judgment, we started preparing all the schools and the, the preschools for opening up. Department of Social Development also put in a lot of work, and I'm not saying they did nothing. They were just very slow in reacting to the crisis that and the, the slaughter that was out there uh, pertaining to uh, preschools. Uh, but they, they put out good documents, uh, Department of Social Development. One of the documents that they put out on the 21st of June was a self-assessment form that had to be done online or on hard copy and sent back to them. That self-assessment form, it's, it says on it that if you've ticked all the boxes here and you are saying yes with all the COVID-19 prerequisites, then you may open uh, because then they've taken you through the whole process. On the 23rd of June, they also sent out a, a document, a 61-pager, uh, which is the standard operating procedures, a great document that addressed many of the things in, in the nursery school. And I, I'm, I need to say that we have uh, really um, uh, told our uh, preschools that they need to use the documents that DSD has given, the self-evaluation, as well as the standard operating procedures document. So outside of the documents that have been provided and the guidance that has been provided, have you received any other support from the Departments of Social Development during the lockdown period? Unfortunately, the, the Social Development uh, Department was very quiet during the whole of lockdown. You will remember there was, uh, there was uh, this whole battle between uh, the Department of Basic Education uh, and the schools, because basic education at a stage allowed their pre-grade R, their grade R's in their pre-grade R's to come back to school. Now, pre-grade R is really on the same age level uh, than the independent uh, uh, preschools are. And they allowed them to come back. And then we, and that is one of our uh, uh, arguments in court, was why, why did uh, Department of Basic Education, why were they allowing their, let's say, nursery schools in, uh, you know, uh, to open, but the Department of Social Development does not allow or did not allow or even give any planning or any date or any program or whatever to open. And that was one of the contentious things that we couldn't understand. So in, in, then uh, eventually they retracted that again and because of, I think, uh, the Department of Social Development that had, uh, had felt that it's now creating a lot of uncertainty, et cetera, et cetera. And then they, when they came to court, they came to court with this, that they've now retracted Department of Basic Education's uh, pre-grade R's. They cannot open anymore. So our court case has fallen by the wayside and they just asked for a court notice to that effect, which of course the judge saw right through it. It was a manipulation 
to be able to just come off uh, with the court case. But that didn't work at that point in time. So, yes, we didn't get much. Now, at this point, you know, we need to distinguish between Department of Basic Education's preschools uh, or their pre-grade R's. And we have to distinguish between private, which is then not, uh, not a part of the school system under the Schools Act. Private, in actual fact, is everything else. And even the, the non-profit uh, preschools that are in, in wherever they may be, in cities or in rural areas or in townships or whatever, are, we deem as private because it's a private person or a private organization that has set it up and that is running that at this point. In that context, uh, the kids were getting two meals a day. Um, the Department of Social Development was... Uh, for a long time already, subsidizing some of those schools, not all of them, but some, quite a few. And, and there was money for children to be able to eat. And this all fell by the wayside and uh, when, when we were closed for such a long period of time. So, so we see in the documentation that uh, there is provision for a, a NPO to ask for, for instance, PPEs or some other help. Uh, to purchase things, but then in the same, by the same token, uh, Department of Social Development is saying they've got budgetary restraints, so they won't be able to help everyone. So that brings us to the place where we are saying that if you do not have the necessary PPEs, if you do not have the ability financially or otherwise to make sure that you are COVID-19 compliant, you just cannot open. And that also is a tragedy. Because there are a lot of those schools, uh, NPOs, for instance, that need to open because those children are roaming the streets, but now they don't have the finances to be able to get their PPEs and everything else in place. I think then all this does is remind me of the conjecture that's been surrounding this conversation for the longest time. The number of parents that I've personally spoken to speaking collectively about the anxiety, not, not, not so much towards the efforts of the schools and the organizations trying to make sure everything is in place and safe for children to return, but the anxieties around the practicalities of welcoming children back into those spaces. How is the organization seeing this working? How are the ECDs going to control and ensure that kids follow the social distancing rules, um, that they make sure that they have their masks on every day? Yes, thank you. That, that is a very important question, how it will work practically. So if one, has, if one follows the protocols, if one follows the standard operating procedures, if one uh, that is specifically written for um, uh, preschools or ECD centers, then we believe that you have a very good chance of being as near to perfect or as near to what you can be uh, when with the safety of the children. Because children, of course, like adults, uh, social distancing, not touching one another, um, uh, many other things uh, is is not it's not valid for them. It, you can't do that because they won't be able to adhere to those kind of things. But the, in the first instance, if we look at the ECD center as a whole, um, the, the very first place is is getting into the center is to uh, to be able to access the center when it's open. 
Now, there's certain regulations around that, that parents and children don't just walk into the center. There is a screening uh, that happens outside the door or just inside the door. And that screening is exactly according to all the standards, all the international best practices that needs to be done. There's a, a form that the parents have to fill in uh, the, about a questionnaire about uh, their own health and the health of their children, etc. Then they are brought in, they are, their temperature is taken, and they are disinfected their hands and their bags and so on, they are brought in. When they come into the classroom, the classrooms have been revisited and set up in a way where the maximum distance can be gained between the tables and chairs. And many of the ECD centers where they have a table with four chairs have taken two of those chairs away to get more distance between the children sitting there. Uh, so, so you can go on with playing outside. There are certain practices that needs to be done of course, playing outside is a very good and a healthy uh, situation because that's where they get to where they're in the open air. Um, but for instance, classes go outside in staggered times. They don't all play together as in, in the past. So they'll take one class out and let them play outside and then they go back to their class and the next class goes out. And then between classes, the equipment is also cleaned up and disinfected, et cetera, et cetera. For instance, with the sleeping arrangement, if you have the smaller kids that are sleeping on mattresses, uh, there are uh, some uh, things that they can do. And we've also told them to put the mattresses in such a way that the kids sleep head to foot, which means that the one child's head is where the other one's feet are. So the, the head has the maximum distance. So all stuff like that, there's a, there's a lot of things uh, we have closed our sand pits, for instance. Uh, they are not used. The sand pit cannot be used during the COVID time. We have a room in every ECD center uh, that we can quarantine or we can put, get somebody uh, uh, separate if during the day uh, there is found that they are getting a temperature because we also say let's measure when we get to school, which me let's measure the temperature at one o'clock and let's measure before we go home. We will not allow a child to come into the school if the parent has a temperature or the parent's uh, questionnaire is filled in uh, in a way that we uh, understand that they may have come into contact with, uh, with this virus. Uh, we will not let the child go in if the parent is is not, uh, you know, safe. And then we also won't, uh, of course, we make sure that if a child or a staff member uh, gets temperature or shows anything, any symptom of, of COVID, that they are quarantined immediately, put into a, a special room. And then from there, parents have to fetch children if, if it's a child. And, and uh, the, if it's staff members, they need to go home and access their medical uh, uh, support system, uh, whereby they then will go through testing and, and the whole process will start from there. I need to just put on the record that, that there is a lot of, of uh, scientific um, research that was done. And children are not the, the greatest source of, of uh, COVID-19. Uh, they are not the, the, most the, the, mo the group that's, that has the most danger of 
getting COVID-19. Um, the, the fraternity, the uh, scientific fraternity tells us that with research, children many times, even if they do get the virus, they are asymptomatic uh, and they, they uh, are not sick, not that sick. Um, and then also it's been found by some that children do not uh, uh, give the virus to adults. They, they don't pass it on to adults. They don't infect adults. They, may, they can, but it's, it's rare that that happens. And, and just to conclude this section is to say that in Europe, in Europe and many other countries of the world, uh, after they've, uh, the country has opened up, uh, like we have now on level three, they have started with the smallest children first. They've brought in the preschools first. I'm thinking of the Scandinavian countries, for instance, who have done that. And not the older children, like we've brought in the grade 12s and the grade 7s, because the smaller children have a natural resistance to the COVID-19. And, and that should also tell parents that, you know, it would put them at ease. While the schools are doing everything possible, science also says that our children are not that much of a risk. Uh, but of course, we understand a mother's heart and a father's heart. We understand that and need to take all the steps necessary. In line with taking all the steps necessary, how will the association mitigate the fact that the virus is at its peak and that we have seen an increase in the rates of infections since the reopening of schools? What are you going to do differently uh, to that, that of what the Department of Education did not do and how is it going to differ between the two? I think the, the, the mere fact that we are working with the much smaller children, number one, makes our task that little bit uh, easier. But we, we are not taking any chances at all with the children. The children's safety and health uh, is, is absolutely paramount. So we, and you know what, preschools have done that through all the years. Uh, preschool, a preschool had to be, and it's even the Children's Act states that a preschool must be a safe place for a child. So I think doing your screening uh, well, making sure that the history of the child and the parent is, is taken into consideration, uh, making sure that the surfaces are clean and disinfected after the kids have moved through it. We can only do what we can do as best we can do that. Um, if, if anything happens, we know that the virus uh, is, is spiking at the moment in South Africa and it's still going to become worse. But I, I believe that the, the, nursery, the, the preschool or nursery school could maybe be a safer place for children than just to be rampant in the, in the community or running around in the community. I think the preschool has a, has a bit of a confined situation and takes them out of the run-of-the-mill uh, community aspects where they can be uh, infected from any other side. So if, if, and we are ready to do that, if it spikes and we see that it at any way uh, is busy, um, uh, the, the, the virus is also um, coming into the children or the children are getting the virus and they're becoming very sick, we will work with health department. We will work with government. If we need to reverse whatever we've done, we will reverse. It's not the children come first. But at this point in time, the damage of the COVID-19 virus 
is less than the damage that is done through the developmental stages of children by not letting them go to their preschool. You know, there's certain um, critical growth phases in children. And when they're in that critical phase, for instance, language and and many other things, uh, if they're in, in that critical phase, if they are not subjected to that growth and development, they lose a, a lot of things, that they lose a lot of momentum. And yeah, maybe they can catch up. Some of it they can catch up. But for instance, if they are under, if they are not, uh, they don't, don't eat well and they are malnourished, we know that stunting is a big problem which doesn't, is not able to be reversed uh, in the future. And uh, we, we have to take all of that in consideration. What? What is the in the best interest of the child? SA Childcare Association feels that today, as we are sitting here, even with the, the, the virus spiking, it is in the best interest of the children to take them separately for the whole day, put them in an, a controlled environment where they have people who are looking after them, who are teaching them and helping them to develop. That, at this point, is the best environment for children. And uh, finally, from me, Anton, is there support that the SA Children Association is looking into giving the ECD centers to ensure smooth running of this new normal that we find ourselves in as the world? Yes, I, I believe that, you know, with, with the virus spiking now, it's most probably a bit more difficult to think of post-corona. Uh, but fact is that that is a reality. Life, uh, a lot of life will not be the same. But a lot of life will, will return to normal. So there will be a, a manner of normality post-COVID. Uh, but what that normality is, people speak of the new normal. Uh, it may be a deviation of what we were used to. It may be that we have to adapt. But you know what? I'm, I'm very positive that uh, Corona uh, and this, this whole pandemic has, has made us to think and has made us to change our way of thinking and our way of doing things. Hopefully, much of that will be put into the post-corona arena and we will be able to have a better reality post-corona than we've had prior to the whole corona pandemic that came. We must guide our people. And, and I'll be truthful with you, as we are sitting here as an association, we, we don't have all the answers yet. We don't know. This is like driving somewhere. You only turn left when you get a left turn. You see it coming up. You only go straight when you see the road go straight. So fact is, it's something, the post-corona we have to address as we grow towards post-corona. And, uh, and, and, and we can think and we can have a lot of ideas and, and so forth. But uh, we need to, to stay close to what's happening on the ground. And that was Anton van der Merwe, who is the SA Child Care Association's Group Managing Director, unpacking for us the judgment that came out of the North Gauteng High Court, allowing for ECD centers to open up immediately. Now, after the break, we unpack this further, looking at what has to be done at these ECD centers for them to open up. All of that's after the break. Quarantine and chill. Send us your quarantine stories. Tweet us at VowFM. 
and you are listening to the COVID report. I am your host, Siposi Lembuli, joined by the lovely Gameli Lepovana. And we are unpacking the opening of ECD centers. Now, the Pretoria High Court ruled on Monday, the 6th of July, that private nursery schools that comply with COVID-19 safety measures can open immediately. We are speaking to Tanzi Venta, who is a principal at Mabel daycare center to unpack what this reopening has looked like for them at their school. Welcome to the COVID report, Tanzi, and thank you so much for joining us. Now, Maylil opened its doors for learners today. And what has the first day back at school been like for teachers and learners combined? It was very exciting for my staff. Um, my staff have all been waiting for this day for a long time now. So the staff are very energetic, motivated, excited. We were all standing in the car park. Um, first customer arrived. We all sh- shouted, screamed, clapped hands, um, took photos, took videos. Um, however, the parents and the children didn't feel the same way that we did, unfortunately. Children were very scared. Parents were very apprehensive. Um, we did our checks that we needed to do and we did all our protocols um, and student waited for the next one. But generally speaking, from our point, point, very positive. From the parents and children, I'd say it's going to take them a little while to get used to all the new protocols that we have in place. Very encouraging stuff. And um, speaking of those uh, protocols that need to be um put in place. The standard operating procedures and guidelines have been issued for ECD centers. What are the safety precautions that Mailil has put in place to ensure compliance with the guidelines provided? Well, the the standard operating procedure was 61 pages long. Um, So basically what we do, we had to, they gave it to us last Thursday um, and we opened today. So it's barely a week that we had to actually go through the 61 pages. Um, But there's a protocol for every single department in my school. There's a protocol that starts in the car park. Um, There's a protocol for the kitchen. There's one for the bathroom. There's a protocol for everybody in the school. Um, all basically what it's about is about social distancing and making sure sanitizing is in place um, and cleanliness. That is the biggest thing and the biggest protocol that they instilled in us. Um, yeah, and as I say, there's a protocol for every single class, every single school, every playground um, in the school. And yeah, we have to adhere to that. But a very complicated document. Um, we broke it down into all different regions and we actually gave each staff member a copy so they could go through it um, and they had to basically read it over the weekend so they could all understand the protocols that we had put in place for them. Alongside these rigorous procedures, staff had to be oriented and trained in the procedures. So prior to the school being opened today, what was the duration of the staff training and what did the training entail? Well, we started our training already in May because we knew that one of these days we would be returning to school. Um, so we were not allowed to come to the school at all. So we had management meetings at one of our manager's houses. So we started with a management meeting, um, which we had every week. We also did Zoom meetings every week, which then started to go to the teachers. Um, so eventually managers, teachers, all the staff were on Zoom meetings, explaining to them what we needed to do. And then when we were allowed to come to school, which was only really last week, um, we started to do all our training and we had to do it in groups because obviously, for instance, the cleaners, the ground staff and maintenance had different training to what the chefs did, to what the teachers had, to what the managers had. So we had different groups of training every single day, which we completed last week. Um, and it all entailed basic things like hand sanitizing, how to prepare children with masks, our quarantine area, um, the symptom screening, the physical distancing, 
Um, and that's basically what we did. All the training requirements we did according to the World Health Organization. Please take us through your daily routine or procedure that you follow when learners report for school in the morning. Okay, basically, because we have babies from three months to grade R, which is six, um, there's obviously a different daily routine for every single class and age group. But I can run you through a, a basic one, which is a five-year-old child, which is our grade double nought class. Um, a lot of the uh, programs um, are similar. You get a senior junior division. So this is generally a senior division child. The child would arrive at school. We open at 6.30 already in the morning. They would go through their normal outside protocol, which is a COVID protocol. Um, they will be screened by the teacher outside, their temperature taken, taken to another area where their bags are sprayed, their feet are sprayed, their hands are sanitized. They are then taken to the allocated classroom. They start off by sitting down um, either on the carpet or at a table, at an area that has been demarcated already, and all the apparatus for the day has been placed um, at certain stations. We work on uh, rotation. So they either go to a table and do, for instance, a puzzle, then they move to the next station, sanitized every time a child moves. Um, so that would start off with their daily routine. They would do a movement activity. Then the teacher comes in and does a theme discussion. Um, the teacher does guided activities. Um, then they get san hands get sanitized. They go to the bathroom. They come out, their hands get sanitized. Um, the children then have the morning snack, which is a sandwich and a juice. They all get seated again in the demarcated areas. Um, they are given a sandwich and a juice. Um, they are Their hands are sanitized before that. They finish eating. Their hands are sanitized after that. Um, they then go out to play. Uh, the, the playground has been divided into three different areas. Each class goes out at a different time. The children do not group anymore which is really sad because a lot of the children's friends are in different grades. So, for instance, if this class in particular went out at 11 o'clock, they would only play outside for 20 minutes with their peers only of their class and then return to the classroom. Then we start again with toilet routine, hand washing, sitting down for lunchtime, listening to a story, um, having their lunch, washing their hands, going down to sleep, um, which is a big thing because the social distancing is 1.5. Um, during sleeping time, head to toe, um, which the children are really not going to be comfortable with because they love sleeping next to their friends. They chit-chat before they go to sleep. Um, then when they wake up, um, their hands are sanitized again. They go to the bathroom. Their hands are sanitized on the way out. They do then their next activity, um, which is normally a um, second ring activity. They have free play in the classroom, um, which is supervised depending on the stations. They then have toilet routine again. They go outside again for play um, at the demarcated areas. They play. The, the assistant obviously then has to clean the apparatus that they've used, um, only being steel. Wood doesn't have to be cleaned, and most of my playground is wood, thank goodness. Uh, the children then go back into the classroom. Um, they get hands get sanitized before they go into the classroom. Um, they sit down at the stations. They do the activity of the day whatever the teachers decided they need to do. Um, they do the activity. They then, it's late afternoon by that time, so they're having an afternoon snack, which is around three o'clock. The same procedure applies to what happened in the morning. Um, they go out for their last play time, which is around about 3.30. They're outside for about 20 minutes. The same procedure applies when they come back into the class. 
they have their last toilet routine, and then they go to a waiting class, um, and they stay there until their parents fetch them at about five o'clock. So basically, they, they're having their hands washed and sanitized really eight or nine times a day, um, and they're getting screened about six times a day, because every time the teacher sits down with the children, they have to go through a screening process. Um, every teacher has a file in their classrooms, and it's a very comprehensive file for every single child, screening every day, six times a day, has to be recorded. Um, all the health protocols are also recorded in that file. If there's any chronic illnesses that any of the children have, it's recorded in the file. The parents have to supply us with evidence from the doctors that the child has such a condition. Um, all the parents' um, contact information is in the emergency information. The daily screening is also in there. The weekly screening, they get weekly screened on a Friday. The form has been sent home to the parent. The parent has to complete it and return it on a Monday to us. Um, yeah, basically that's it. So a very extensive protocol and very extensive steps to ensure that kids are protected. But have you ensured that parents have educated their children enough about the coronavirus and how to protect themselves from contracting it? Um, quite a while ago, I'd say around about May, I started to communicate to the parents. The only form of communication during this time was through our WhatsApp groups. Um, every single class in the school has a WhatsApp group. So it's very easy to send a message specific to a group. Um, so we're sending out a group message. We send it to nine classes um, and every parent receives it, the mother and the father. So that was our form of communication. So my first thing was we sent out a message to all the parents saying, please practice with your children how to put on a mask and to take off a mask and to sanitize a mask. That's where we started. Um, we then did a 32-page slideshow um, for all the parents to read through and to familiarize themselves with all the protocols at Mail. We then did a YouTube video, which we did from the protocol outside when they arrive until they get into the classroom the whole day and when they leave. So we just felt that if they looked at the video, uh, they could see everything their child was doing from the time they left here. If they weren't sure, they could go through the 32-page um, slideshow that we did, which informed them and showed them and explained to them in detail how every single protocol in the school works. Um, the daily screening was a form that was an attachment to the slideshow. The weekly screening was an attachment, and so was the form which needed to be filled out by the parent and returned by today that basically informed us of all the chronic illnesses, the emergency contacts. That was the form that needed to go into the teacher's file um, every single day. Um, also, children under five do not wear masks, um, so we had to educate our parents as to why that happens, and only children over five need to wear masks. But I must say, every child that came today had a mask on. Um, all the under fives actually did have masks on, which is fine. It's, they're free to wear masks or shields if the parents feel that they need to. So we basically tried our best to get the message across. It's very hard to get messages across to people when you're doing it on social media. I much prefer to have meetings with my parents, but unfortunately we couldn't at this point. Um, but yeah, the communication worked. We had very few queries. Um, yeah, things that we thought that we may need to include in the slideshow, we did. But, you know, inevitably there always was something like one parent asked me last night, um, how are the children going to be drinking water? Um, which we'd already covered, but um, we didn't put it in the slideshow. However, um, once I explained it to him, he was quite fine with that. So I think overall our parents are happy with um, everything we've put in place. And with time to come, obviously, we're not perfect. Um, we need to improve on everything every day. Um, yes, and we, as time goes on, we will educate them more about what we're doing to prevent the spread of COVID in our school. 
Now, Tanzi, I'd like to ask my next question as a two-hander. Yeah? My, the first part of my question is around um, your experiences with dealing with parents in the wake of all the conjecture that's been made around the science that seems to dictate that children are less at risk to contract and spread this virus than adults are. I'm curious as to in, whether or not in your experience that that science or, or, or the conjecture around that science does enough to quell the concerns and anxieties of parents, um, especially those who um, send their children to your establishment. And as far as the, the science seemingly dictating that children can't um, contract or, or, or children are less, are much less of a risk of contracting and spreading this virus in the, in the instance that um, a state of emergency, a case of emergency arises where a learner is symptomatic, what plan of action do you have in place? Well, generally speaking, because I'm a registered school, we already have protocols in place that we have to follow on a daily basis. So things like hand sanitizing, our children do all day, every day in any case. Um, they are taught hygiene all the time from the baby class all the way through to the six-year-old. So those protocols have always been in place and the parents know it. Um, so it was easier for us than, I suppose, being in the corporate world because children learn very quickly and they do that every day. However, it's always the parents that instill fear um, within their children. So the children coming to our environment is a safe environment because I do believe that children are not carriers of the COVID virus and that they don't get the COVID virus. Um, when your children start school when they're three months old, the immune system is very weak initially, but let me tell you, when you leave you at six, you can face anything. Because if you're exposed to so many children on a daily basis, with all the different diseases that we get through our school, more and more each year, um, weird diseases that we've never seen before. It's not the chicken pox and measles. It's things that we question, what is this? Um, and we have to deal with it on a daily basis. So something like COVID to us is just another communicable disease, maybe in a larger format. But really, it's just another childhood ailment that we're getting and that we have to deal with. And we honestly believe that we're going to be okay because we've seen much worse things at the school, I promise you, than the COVID because children do not become infected with every single disease that goes by. I mean, we can have an outbreak of measles and it only affects five children and I have 170 children. So I don't think that COVID... In this instance, and please don't quote me, I'm, I'm just telling you what my opinion is, that children do not get the COVID virus. I believe that the parents get the COVID virus. They are passing it on to all their colleagues and their family members. Um, the children will not get it. Um, they're safer here than they are at home because it's all children here that do not have the virus. We are stricter here with all the protocols than anybody is in your home, in your workplace, because we do it on a daily basis. So I really feel that we in an institution of children, more ECD sectors, I'm not talking about primary school or high school, will not get this virus because we do our sanitizing on a daily basis. We have so many diseases that come through our school and we deal with them. We do the same protocol every day. What we're doing now for COVID, we do it on a daily basis. If a child has measles, the same thing happens. So your next question to me was, what would we do if somebody got COVID? We have a health and safety officer, um, which is, controls the quarantine section. So if a child has been monitored 
on the third uh, screening of the day and the temperature is high, which basically if the temperature is more than, say, 37.4 degrees, the teacher then contacts the health and safety officer. The health and safety officer collects the child from the actual classroom. They take the child into the quarantine area, which has been isolated and it has all the protocols in place. Um, we are then contacted parents immediately. The temperature is taken of the child throughout the hopefully half an hour while the child is there. Um, a child is placed, a mask is placed on the child if the child does not have a mask. Um, we wait for the parent to arrive. Um, the parent takes the child. The parent has to advise us um, of the test once the child has had the test done. Um, only once the results are out do we then take the next step as to advise the um, NICD, which is the National Institute for Communicable Diseases, which we normally do do if something happens in our school. For instance, if we have an outbreak of hand, foot and mouth disease, we have to contact them in any case. We then have to contact the health department and Minister of Social Development, um, not in particular Minister Zulu, but her department. Um, and then they would obviously come and make us quarantine the people that were in very close contact with their child. Um, if proved positive, we would have to evacuate our school, sanitize our school um, within 48 hours. If all is in order, we can return, but the child may not return or the people that were in close contact with the child for 14 days. So once again, a very rigorous procedure in ensuring that people and children are very safe in these centers. But an important aspect of preventing COVID-19 and ensuring one doesn't get infected is social distancing. So how as a school are you going to enforce social distancing more, especially amongst children who some may assume not, not to follow or may assume that don't want to follow the social distancing protocols? Social distancing, we call it physical distancing in ECD sector. Social distancing is more for adults. So physical distancing within children is very difficult um, because you taught, children are taught to love, to care, to hug, um, to love your friend, to say sorry to your friend by hugging them. We've never encouraged kissing. In fact, it's one of my staff protocols. They are not allowed to kiss any of the children. Um, so we are very aware of that. We've always been aware of that. Social distancing is hard. Um, this morning in the car park, uh, the third child that arrived, as this child arrived, she got out the car and she physically ran to me with her arms out. And I had to say to her, I love you, but, but we're not allowed to hug. Give me your elbow. And we had to do the elbow thing. It was very, very difficult for me um, because children do not understand. And this child was a grade R child. So I would have thought that she would have understood, but she couldn't. She was so excited to see us. So, yes, um, it's hard. Uh, the children don't understand, especially the young children. Um, I think that's why they're also scared, because, number one, as they enter the school, they cannot hug their teacher. Um, they cannot. We cannot hold the children by their hands and guide them where they need to go. Um, on the playground, it's been divided up. They can't play together anymore. They can't go down the slide together. They can't go on the swings together. We all have to take turns. We all have to stand on markers wherever we go. There's markers all over my school in different colors, bathroom markers, class markers, corridor markers, playground markers. Wherever you go, you have to stand on a marker. You can never interact with any person or child, uh, which is really sad. Um, but children adapt very quickly. Um, they learn very quickly. Nobody likes change, especially children. But we do believe that we've made everything fun for them. 
So social distancing is going to be part of the daily program and it's going to be fun. We're going to hop on all the markers. We're going to jump to the one marker and dance to the next marker. And we're just going to have to try and teach them, but it's not going to be easy because we are basically now undoing everything that we've taught them to love, to be kind, to love, to shake hands, to say sorry, to love your friend, to sit next to your friend, to lie on your but your bed, like I said earlier, and they actually cuddle each other sometimes um, and play with each other's feet. Um, we've got to stop all of that. So that's going to be really hard, but we have to do it and we will do it and the children will adapt. You touched on the difficulties that come with trying to impart all of this new information to the young ones and the ways in which um, they might not understand how um, their instinct is to rush towards you with their arms opened, opened out wide to hug you, but we're not, being, we're not able to hug um, each other during this pandemic and the difficulties that may arise in trying to get the young ones to understand that. I can imagine how daunting that must be both emotionally and mentally. And I mean, just speaking on that, can we please get a sense of which um, of your normal day-to-day -day activities will no longer take in take place um, while um, children are back in, in your space. And as a Center for Early Childhood Development, being equipped to handle children with different types of behaviors, how are you going to monitor the COVID-19 protocols in children as far as regularly um, washing their hands? Um, what the the exchange or losses of masks and other sorts of playing material? Um, as far as the playground is concerned, there weren't too many restrictions. Uh, we weren't allowed to have a sand pit anymore, which is going to be a big blow to the children because I would say that is their favourite apparatus on the playground. Um, it's very important for children to play with sand. It's a sensory um, a skill that they need to learn um, at an early age, um, it's like being on the beach. And you know how relaxed your children are on the beach. So the sand pit we've had to empty. It took us basically a whole day to empty our sand pit because it's very big. So we have this big hole in the middle of our playground with concrete in it, and it's really looking drab. I've really got to put something in there to brighten up the playground. But the sand pit was definitely taken away. Um, the children... Under five, don't wear masks. So I'm not too worried about children taking off each other's masks or putting on the wrong masks. Um, over five, the children are quite responsible. Um, five to six-year-olds uh, listen, they understand, they won't share each other's masks. And even if they do, we have spare masks. Um, so the mask will be taken away from the child, sent home to the parent. Um, we will then give them one of our masks for the day so make sure that there's no um, COVID contact from one child to the other. Um, and then as far as the rest of the playground is concerned, I would just say that most of the equipment on the playground can be used. Um, we're going to sanitize everything. Every single time a teacher goes out with a group of uh, children, everything will be sanitized, as I said earlier, only the metal. Um, so I don't think that's a major. Um, I think we'll be fine with the playground. So Tansy, you've mentioned something quite interesting that I would like to ask for further clarity on. Why is it that children under five don't have to wear masks? And why does metal not necessarily have to be sanitized? Just the second part of the question. First one was the under five masks. And, and why part? does metal not have to be sanitized? What? We, what? Why does what not have to be sanitized? 
Wood, sorry, wood. Oh, wood. Okay, children under five um, will most probably battle to breathe. Um, children don't understand to blow out and they suck in. So a lot of the times they suck in the mask. Um, even our babies in our baby class, as I said, we have babies from three months old. Um, they always have to not obviously sleep on their tummies. Um, it's the same concept that the child would be lying on the, the mattress and they're sucking in the mattress cover and they can't breathe. So the same happens with a mask. A child will breathe in and they could suck in their mask and suffocate. So children don't understand under five how to actually breathe through a mask um, and they panic. And that's the fear that we have for children under five. Um, shields would have been a better option. Um, however, children will not have shields. They will worry them um, as much as the mask or they will touch them. And as soon as you start touching a mask, it becomes ineffective. And then switching over to the curriculum that you would have covered, how did you go about during the lockdown and the hard lockdown? Did you go about keeping learning going and keeping students up to date with their curriculum? We closed on the 18th of March, which was the day before it was the end of term two, term one. Um, basically what happens, we normally take a holiday program whereby we don't follow the curriculum. We decided to not take any holidays throughout the rest of the year. We started with our, our work again from the Monday. We started with Zoom lessons, which were very effective um, in the older grades. Um, it was not so successful in the younger grades. So what we basically did on a weekly basis from that Monday right up until yesterday, um, we had Zoom lessons twice a week for grade R twice a week for five-year-olds. Then the lower grades between two and four, um, Zoom did not work because the children could not sit still. So the teachers then did um, teaching via WhatsApp videos. So they would get videoed and then we would present those videos to the parents and the lesson was in a video. We also did a media Zoom and video lesson every Wednesday for the whole school. So basically that is what we call media lessons. It's basically a summary of the theme of the week and all the children had the video and the Zoom lesson for that, as well as every Monday, every single grade gate got prep for the whole week. So basically they had what they would do at school normally. They have a weekly program from Monday to Friday. We did that every week. The teachers prepared their normal prep. It was sent in the same format through to the parents, and the parents had to teach the children every single day, Monday to Friday. And we have not stopped doing that until yesterday. Now, Tanzi, without necessarily trying to pry into um, your organization's financials, I am curious to find out how you as an organization um, had to rise up to the challenge of the financial implications of this pandemic. Yeah, that's a hard one. Okay, well, we've made it this far, so it's a good thing. Um, basically, what I did, I have a very good rapport with all my parents. Um, over this time, it, it basically taught us to interact more with people because you can't see them, so you had to speak to them via WhatsApp calls, etc. So during this time, um, I spoke to my parents and I asked them what the concerns were, why they couldn't pay, what could they pay. Um, and I really got a sense of parents that were working 
paid in full. Parents that were battling, obviously, I made arrangements within the first month. And then I could see by the second month that I needed to do something overall for my parents. So I cut my fee by 50% for the next three months, um, including this month of July. Um, everybody paid half a school fee. Um, I have families that have been with me for three generations, so I have very loyal parents. And I must say, overall, um, I managed to pay my 26 staff members 50% um, of their pay um, for the last three months. They also received UIF. Um, so basically, my staff got their full salary every month for three months. And I can say that I can say thank you to my parents because they came to the party. They paid their 50%. I have parents that paid their full fee every single month. And then, of course, there were many parents that paid nothing at all. Um, and like I said, it was a story for every single parent that I had to listen to. And if the mother and the father had lost their job, I never charged them anything at all because I could not charge them, obviously. But we never stopped lessons for any child during this four-month four lockdown. Every child has had the same opportunities, the same lessons. We've continued because what happened during COVID wasn't anybody's fault. And I didn't want any of the children to suffer because of what has happened. Really some phenomenal work that you've done there in accommodating parents during this time. So lastly, Tansy, before we let you go, do you have any fears for this pandemic? Are there any fears around your school? Are you scared for your teachers? Do you believe that you can fully execute everything that is required during these times? As I said to my teachers, we're doing the best that we can. We've got all our protocols in place. Um, we have all our social distancing in place. More than what we've actually done, we physically cannot do. As I said, we're not perfect. We will learn as we go along. However, are we going to get it perfect? I, I'm trying my best. COVID is something that we've never, ever had before in this country. And I really and truly feel that as time goes on, we will become more familiar. Um, I'm not scared. My staff are not scared. My parents are scared. My children are scared. But I think together, we'll get this together because I do believe it's going to be with us for a long time to come. We just have to instill the faith in everybody that it's something that we have to live with. And children have to be at school. School is not just about education. School is about so much more. ECD is the foundation to all future schooling. And if children don't come to ECD sectors, they will not succeed in formal schooling. Tansy Fenter, the principal of the Maylil Nursery School, joining us here on the COVID report, unpacking all the developments in the wake of the Pretoria High Court's ruling on Monday, the 6th of July, that private nursery schools that comply with COVID-19 safety measures can open immediately. Before that, we spoke to Anton van der Merwe, who um, also uh, chimed in with implications of the ruling by the Pretoria High Court. And until next time, you will find me and Game reporting on COVID-19. This podcast was brought to you by Voice of Vids. By Voice of Vids. To hear more of our shows, tune in to 88.1. 88.1. Or streams via www.varfm.co.za.